You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science, where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, Shannon Fife talks about her paper, Tracking Hate Speech Acts as Incitement to Genocide in International Criminal Law, published in the Leiden Journal of International Law. Shannon is an assistant professor of philosophy and a fellow in the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at George Mason University, specializing in international conflict and international criminal law. Hate speech is often accompanied by violence, but is there any difference between saying something hateful on the one hand and inciting violent crime on the other? The contribution of Shannon's paper is to help us understand this distinction and what it means for criminal prosecution under international law in cases of genocide around the world. The main point of this paper is to think about how we should understand really, really harmful speech in the context of mass atrocities like genocide. The way I got into this, I studied abroad in East Africa when I was in college, and I became really interested in the use of sexual violence as a uh, weapon of war uh, in the context of the Rwandan genocide. I then worked at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda when I was in law school, not on the case I discuss in this paper, but on another joint trial of four uh, military leaders. I got to look behind the scenes and see what some of the challenges facing in international criminal law were, um, as well as some of the prospects for for doing good. And I've been writing about issues related to mass atrocity crimes ever since. This article actually came out of a seminar paper that I wrote during my first semester in graduate school for philosophy uh, in a course about hate speech. I was learning how to start a philosophy paper from a critique, and I read something for the course uh, about hate speech during the Rwandan genocide. And I thought that the author got a lot wrong uh, in her understanding of the law and in her way of conceptualizing hate speech in the context of genocide. So once I really got into the groove in philosophy, I couldn't understand why we let anyone go to law school without a background in philosophy. Most of the other folks I know who work on law and philosophy went the other way around, which usually means they end up teaching in a law school after they finish their law degree. But I'm really happy with the way that I did it, even though I know I would have done better in law school with a background in philosophy. But I really love teaching philosophy um, students, so I'm, I'm much happier with the way that the, way, the direction in which I did this. I love having the tools to make strong conceptual arguments about a still developing area of the law. And I really love having the background experience and understanding of the law that allows me to engage with practitioners and legal scholars, as well as philosophers. I drag law school a lot, uh, especially in front of my students, because I don't think that it provides a lot of useful skills. Baby lawyers still have to be trained once they start working. And for the most part, I think law school, uh, in law school, they don't engage enough with the interesting philosophical questions. Uh, although I was lucky enough to have a philosopher for my first year criminal law um, professor. But I find that having the background in how the law works is crucial, whether or not you go to law school, not just for the specific issues that I work on in international criminal law, but for everything from bioethics to political philosophy. I find that my background in each discipline, law and philosophy, makes me more nimble in the other discipline. 
So incitement is a, a word that we often hear um, not in a legal context. It has a really specific legal meaning uh, that can differ depending on what jurisdiction you're in. Uh, but it's something that we hear uh, commonly outside of the law. Um, but within the law, it's the crime of using speech to encourage or persuade someone else to commit a crime. Uh, one place that we've heard this phrase a lot in the U.S. In, in the past few months is after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. There were a lot of conversations about whether or not the former president could have been found to have incited the people who participated uh, in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Um, and as a general matter, we might think that has something to do with whether he was specific enough in directing his followers to commit crimes rather than just saying hateful things. Um, so one of the challenges that uh, I'll talk about today is, is this tension between when something constitutes hate speech and when something constitutes uh, incitement, which is a crime. Uh, in the U.S., hate speech is generally not a crime. Um, but in general, what distinguishes incitement from hate speech is that you are, in fact, trying to encourage or persuade someone else to commit a crime. Uh, and so this brings up kind of one of the main challenges of the crime of incitement, which is that it is an inchoate crime. Uh, in general, crimes have to be completed in order for you to be charged with them. Uh, you can't charge someone with murder if the victim merely loses his leg but retains his life. What you can charge them with is attempted murder, which is also an inchoate crime. And these are acts that are taken toward committing a crime, but they're incomplete with respect to um, at least one act. So one question involves the relationship between a person's statement purporting to get someone to commit a crime and whether or not the crime is actually completed. And then another issue is the tension between free speech and incitement, figuring out when something is hateful, terrible, or just a dumb thing to say, and when it is in fact encouraging someone to commit a crime and therefore a crime itself. Distinguishing incitement from hate speech is a really tricky question. So sometimes it can be difficult to distinguish them, uh, and sometimes it looks more like, well, Hate speech and incitement can both be part of the same statement, but they aren't necessarily the same part of the statement. Um, incitement can include hate speech, but the important distinction to make is that incitement involves encouraging someone to commit a crime, and for our purposes, it will be a violent crime. So for instance, if I say all Democrats are cockroaches who are trying to steal the election, I've engaged in hate speech toward a group of people. But if I further say to a fired up crowd in DC, all Democrats are cockroaches who are trying to steal the election, you should go break into the Capitol and stop them by whatever means necessary right now. It looks more like I am inciting them to break the law imminently. And I am also saying something hateful because I am simultaneously calling them cockroaches. If I just say, you should go break into the Capitol and stop the Democrats from stealing the election by whatever means necessary right now, this looks like incitement, but probably not hate speech. So in short, they can be part of the same speech act, and there are situations in which it's hard to distinguish between the two of them, but the advocacy part is what is crucial for identifying incitement. 
Okay, so that's what it is generally, but let's talk about how it can be prosecuted in different jurisdictions. In the U.S., we get a basic understanding of incitement law from a 1969 case called U.S. versus Brandenburg. And in this case, a leader in the KKK made a speech at a Klan rally on a private farm. The speech included remarks accusing the U.S. government of suppressing the Caucasian race and other hateful sorts of things. A journalist and a camera person were at the event, and then parts of the event were later broadcast on local television. And Brandenburg was convicted of advocating violence under the Ohio criminal syndicalism statute, which made illegal advocating crime, sabotage, violence, or unlawful methods of terrorism as a means of accomplishing industrial or political reform. The Supreme Court found that this law was unconstitutional and constructed a new test for when political speech can be prohibited. So this is what we now call in the US the Brandenburg test. And it has two parts. First, political speech must be directed at inciting or producing imminent lawless action. So the important words there are imminent uh, and assessing kind of when something constitutes imminent uh, and then lawless action. It can't just be um, kind of broadly um, something that might result in lawless action. It has to be directed at um, particular kinds of lawless action. And then second, it has to be likely to incite or produce such action, right? So if you say something and it is your fervent intent to produce lawless action, but it's not likely to be understood in that way, and it just so happens that it results in lawless action, you're probably not going to meet this definition either. Um, so again, the lawless action must be imminent. And also, it does not actually have to produce the lawless action. It just has to be likely to incite or produce such action. In the UK and in many civil law countries, incitement law is broader as there's less concern about protecting free speech. And hate speech can be prohibited under more circumstances. In the UK, for instance, there's a distinction made based on whether or not a crime followed the alleged act of incitement. Uh, so if no crime follows from the purported act of incitement, then you can charge someone with incitement. But if a crime follows, then the individual is charged with the crime itself either directly or indirectly. So incitement is only relevant then in the UK as a crime when there is no lawless action that follows. Now, international human rights law does not have criminal law provisions, but it really struggles to manage the tension between limiting free speech to prevent violence and providing for freedom of expression. Those are two really important aspects of human rights law, and they are not easily um, brought out of tension with one another. Some human rights bodies try to use a proportionality standard to assess when to infringe on free speech rights to prevent speech-based harm, but this standard is obviously quite difficult to apply. And then, as we'll talk about now, international criminal law includes direct and public incitement to genocide as a punishable act. Uh, in That's the way that we are going to talk about it in this paper. That's what it is under the statute that applies to 
the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, uh, at the ICC. It's not a punishable act. It is a uh, mode of participation in the punishable act of genocide. The definition of genocide, contrary to sometimes popular belief, is not just, is there something really, really terrible happening? The definition is the commission of certain acts with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And the acts include things like killing, causing serious bodily or mental harm, deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about the group's physical destruction, imposing measures intended to prevent births, and forcibly transferring children to another group. Some of the basic challenges for prosecuting incitement to genocide are similar to those that have faced domestic jurisdictions already in prosecuting incitement uh, more generally. When does hateful speech become an encouragement for others to commit crimes and here mass atrocities? And a lot of this is going to turn on an important element of a crime, which is the perpetrator's intent. So most criminal statutes include an act element and a mental state, and sometimes other elements like surrounding circumstances or causation. As an example, the crime of genocide has a list of acts that I already mentioned that can meet the act requirement, but it also has a mental state requirement. These acts have to be done with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a group on the basis of national, ethnical, racial, or religious identity as such. Otherwise, these acts may be really terrible, but they don't constitute genocide. So figuring out whether someone was trying to persuade someone to destroy a group on the basis of that group's identity marker is tricky. The core question here is, when does hate speech become incitement? Because even though there are some jurisdictions that are more willing to prosecute hate speech than the U.S. is, for instance, uh, there's always going to be hate speech that is, in fact, permissible, whereas incitement is a crime. The media case, which is the case that I use as an example to illustrate some of these questions about the tension between hate speech, uh, preventing violence, and free speech, uh, is what I refer to as the media case. Uh, and this was the joint trial of three Rwandan media executives. Two were co-founders of a radio station, and one was the editor-in-chief of a newspaper. And all three had purportedly used their platforms in ways that contributed to the genocide of Tutsi people in Rwanda in 1994. Interestingly, and so the reason why I use this case is because there haven't been that many prosecutions for incitement to genocide. And one of the reasons why this case is interesting is because there wasn't direct evidence tying any of these three media executives to physical acts of violence. What they were charged with doing was uh, more like what happened with Stryker after the um, during the Holocaust, right? It was the use of the of words. It was the use of these media platforms to create a climate that um, made Tutsis uh, sound like they were not human, right? That convinced people that Tutsis were less than human, um, and then uh, depending on uh, which 
form of media we're talking about, there were acts that could have looked more like they were giving specific instructions to people uh, to commit acts of violence rather than just contributing to the dehumanization of Tutsi people. So this was a case that happened at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which is an ad hoc tribunal that was set up by the UN Security Council uh, as a way of trying people who participated in the Rwandan genocide. Uh, so it was, again, created by the UN Security Council. Uh, it is not a, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it, it served its purpose of, of trying mostly really high up leaders uh, who planned and uh, participated in the Rwandan genocide. Uh, one other interesting feature of this court is that it was not located in Rwanda. It was located next door in Tanzania, which um, you might think has, has some benefits and some costs. There was less access for survivors of the genocide to uh, participate in or view the trials. Um, but arguably there was less of a charged political climate uh, in Arusha and Tanzania than there was um, in Rwanda when these uh, cases started in 1995. The criminal law is usually supposed to look at just what the perpetrator does. So in general, the criminal law is looking at uh, whether or not a particular act occurred, but the criminal law doesn't change based on uh, what other people did uh, following a particular act. It doesn't change based on kind of how, um, how much psychological harm a victim experiences, and usually sentencing doesn't change based on what a victim wants. Criminal law is supposed to be really explicitly aimed at punishing a perpetrator for what that perpetrator did and what their intent was with respect to that act. One way that uh, we can use philosophy to help distinguish between the different kinds of crimes related to speech rather than other sorts of acts is Austin's speech act theory. He distinguishes between locutions, which are acts of saying something, Illocutions, which are acts done in saying something, and perlocutions, which are acts done by saying something. We can think of more run-of-the-mill hate speech acts as locutions, and we could think of incitement as either illocutions or perlocutions. In terms of categorizing incitement to genocide, we could think of incitement as a perlocutionary act, dependent upon the cooperation of the audience in order to be successful. If the mental state of a speaker is directed at inciting someone to commit genocide, then the perlocutionary act would be the attempted commission of genocide by a hearer of the speech act. If the hearer is not convinced to commit genocide, then the perlocutionary act is unsuccessful on one account, the intention-based account. On another account, the uptake account, if the hearer is convinced to commit genocide, but still does not commit or attempt to commit genocide for whatever reason, then the speaker's perlocutionary object is also not achieved. We can imagine someone on the radio saying, all Tutsis are cockroaches, so you should exterminate them. The hearer must at least be convinced that they should participate in the extermination of the Tutsis and perhaps take steps to commit crimes in furtherance of that end. 
The main challenge for using this model when we try to map it onto the law is that we can't really take uptake into account in evaluating the success or failure of the perlocutionary act of incitement. The criminal law is supposed to be focused on the perpetrator and shouldn't rely so much about on whether or not the uptake occurs and whether or not the crimes are actually committed. And if we adopt the perlocutionary view of, of incitement, then there are too many opportunities for luck to make it the case that even though someone uh, performed the requisite speech acts and had the requisite intent and there were uh, the requisite attendant circumstances such that they meet all of the elements of a crime of incitement, the fact that no crimes actually occurred as a result of their intent and their actions, that would prevent them from actually being charged with that crime. And I think that's the wrong way to think about incitement. For example, to return to the media case, if a radio announcer is uh, saying all Tutsis are cockroaches and you should exterminate them. And uh, two Hutus hear this on the radio and say, oh, I am going to go um, get my machete that is under my bed that I am ready to use to exterminate my neighbors that I happen to know are Tutsis. Um, and then for some reason, uh, the machete is rusted and uh, it's raining outside. And then they decide not to um, actually exterminate their Tutsi neighbors, right? They have been, uh, their mindset has been changed by hearing the radio announcer um, dehumanize the Tutsis, uh, right, as the hate speech part of the statement, and then encourage them to exterminate their neighbors, the incitement part of the statement. I don't think we would want to say that the radio announcer wasn't responsible uh, for having committed the crime of incitement just because it started raining. We might think that the illocutionary account would be more useful in helping us think about incitement. Unfortunately, it also has problems. Illocutions help us understand incitement in terms of intent. Is this a better way to understand the crime? Unfortunately not, because of how the law works in a bunch of places. Weirdly, the category of incitement actually gets erased if we think about it as an illocutionary act. The British legal approach to incitement actually supports the idea that there is no such thing as incitement as a perlocutionary act. Incitement is an illocutionary act on the British model where you are only charged with incitement if there is no uptake and there's no successful completion of the ultimate crime. But weirdly, if the completed crime occurs, it becomes a perlocutionary act because the inciting speaker becomes an accessory to the crime rather than a mere inciter. So while incitement is an illocutionary act, it is dissolved and becomes a perlocutionary act if uptake occurs and the crime is actually committed. So while we might think that this solves the problem and that it is focused more on intent than on uptake, the problem with the way the law works is that the uptake still matters. So if you intend to incite someone to do something and they actually do it, 
then you now have just done that thing. You have now committed that crime. So, for example, in the media case, this would mean that the defendants should only have been charged with genocide or conspiracy to commit genocide based on the ICTR's assessment of their level of participation in the crime and not with incitement to genocide. So you would just be charged as an accessory to the crime of genocide or with genocide itself rather than as someone who um, is inciting someone else to commit that particular crime. You would be charged as a, an indirect participant in the ultimate crime. Now, we still can distinguish this further from the idea of genocidal participation speech. And this is where the you, it could still involve a speech act, but where what you are saying is more specific such that you can be seen under the law as a direct participant in a crime. So if you are providing uh, more specific details about particular uh, people to target and perhaps providing the means with which to target them, then you could be seen as someone who is directly participating in the crime of genocide in the form of uh, instigation rather than just as an accessory or an indirect participant. So if, you, uh, if a radio announcer said something like, all Tutsis are cockroaches and we should exterminate them, and here is a list of 10 Tutsis with their addresses and the code for the lockbox on which, uh, in which we have all kinds of machetes and other weapons. And here are the hours during which these people will be home. That is at least conceptually distinguishable from uh, being an accessory to a crime. That would um, put you in the ballpark of being a direct participant in the crime of genocide. Again, conceptually, they are distinct figuring out where the line is uh, in practice between uh, kind of a, a broad call to arms uh, incitement versus uh, direct instigation is tricky. I don't think I want to argue that we should get rid of the crime of incitement to genocide, but I think the upshot of the view is to make it clear what the limitations are of relying on incitement to genocide as a way to either broadly prevent genocide and harm um, or as a way to handle a global uptick in hate speech both as an intrinsic harm and as something that is contributing to further greater harms like genocide, right? And so I think sometimes international criminal law is seen as this great savior that is going to prevent uh, mass atrocity crimes from happening. And the fact that incitement to genocide is part of that is a way that people can think about, oh, well, we can just prevent people by having this as an option for prosecution. We can prevent people from engaging in this kind of speech. And I think it's pretty clear that at least from the vantage point of international criminal law, it's not serving the kind of purpose that we might want it to serve. That's not to say that domestic criminal legal systems couldn't be doing some of this work to stop uh, political leaders in their tracks or that civil society can't use um, some of these tools to think about uh, preventing hate speech and the harm that comes from it. But I think really the upshot is to show the limitations of relying on incitement as this kind of separate category of what international criminal law can do and say, in general, 
you know, once a case gets to an international criminal court or tribunal, a person who would be in the docket there, there's already likely going to be so much evidence of other things that they have done other than just inciting other people to commit acts of violence that it's going to be much more useful and efficient to just try people with indirect or direct participation in the ultimate crimes rather than just the crime of incitement. We've talked about the way that Speech Act theory could help us think about hateful or incitement-based speech acts in the context of an ongoing or recently ended conflict. But what about Speech Act theory helping us think about genocide denial, uh, perhaps many years following an active conflict uh, situation? And Speech Act theory could help us think about liability for genocide denial as well. So some states have adopted genocide denial legislation for similar reasons that incitement law exists the need to outlaw speech that is intended and likely to result in the commission of crimes. And in these cases where tension perhaps remains high, the idea is that someone publicly denying genocide might result in immediate violence. This parallels the previous discussion of speech act theory and incitement. But this presumes a particular purpose of the legislation and a particular climate in which the uptake of the Speech Act would be likely to result in violence. At the writing of this article, I claimed that if Germany outlawed illocutionary acts of Holocaust denial as genocidal incitement speech, there must be felicitous conditions in place for these acts to succeed as perlocutionary acts of completed crimes of genocide. It wasn't clear that that was the case. The context was unlikely to lead to successful perlocutionary acts of hatred or even disturbance of the public peace. But given the rise of the far right in Europe and in Germany in particular over the past few years, I'm not sure that I would actually still defend this view. We could also see the Germany laws as illocutionary acts of harm in and of themselves rather than attempts to incite genocide. But these are not the reasons given for the laws, despite the fact that Germany tends to be more willing to outlaw speech that offends someone's dignity than we do in the US. I actually received several emails from people who were in fact genocide deniers themselves, reaching out to see if I could help with their uh, legal cases in Germany and elsewhere. And because they thought that I had written an article uh, defending genocide deniers. That is certainly not uh, the point of this article. It's really just to consider the relationship between these laws and incitement laws and speech act theory and to see if we could understand what could justify this sort of uh, limitation on freedom of expression, uh, which again, we, it's hard for us to imagine having genocide denial laws in the U.S. because we have a stronger commitment to free speech ideals than a lot of Europe. Um, but if we think of the aim of genocide denial legislation as being to prevent harm, then we do need to think about the felicity conditions that would have to exist for someone denying the existence of genocide to actually result in an outbreak of violence. And again, at the time, I did not think that was the case in Germany. I think uh, I might 
I might be willing to revise that view now. I'm not working specifically on the issues in this paper right now. I'm interested more broadly on issues related to prosecutorial discretion and international criminal law, uh, and then issues of hate speech more broadly. But I think what this paper showed me, and hopefully um, can continue to be useful, is to really show the limitations of international criminal law in addressing uh, some of the tensions that we are continuously finding to be so challenging in our domestic legal systems. So I really think that where research on this and um, kind of practical solutions should go on this is in domestic legal systems. Uh, again, actually in cases like the January 6th attacks. With authoritarian regimes on the rise, I wonder if domestic legal systems We'll take these events more seriously and try to establish responsibility for leaders rather than the low-level perpetrators exclusively. And if what happened in the U.S. is any indication, unfortunately, that seems unlikely. That's it for today's episode. Funding in part was provided by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at George Mason University. Visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about Shannon Fife, her work, some of the resources mentioned on today's episode.